Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We're back. Our first episode of 2023, so a very happy new year to you all, to all our listeners. We've got a packed edition of the podcast to start the year, and we're going to take a deep dive into Africa and the complex role that China has been playing on the continent. We've recently published a major report looking at over 20 African countries suffering either from debt distress or at risk of it, and with Beijing a key creditor. And this comes as China's new foreign minister, Chin Gang, is touring several African countries this week, including visits to Ethiopia, Angola and the headquarters of the African Union. We'll be discussing what all this means, as well as the key findings of our researchers. Also this week, we hosted Dr. Comfort Eero, president of the International Crisis Group. And in conversation with our own Dr. Patricia Lewis, we discussed the 10 conflicts to watch out for in 2023. We'll be looking at three of them, but more on that a bit later in the show. Joining me in the studio this week, and we're all in the studio to help break down these huge topics. We're starting the year with Dr. Alex Vines, director of our Africa program. Hi, Alex. Hello. Good to have you with us. Creon Butler, the director of our Global Economy and Finance program. Welcome, Creon. Hello, Rowan. Returning to the podcast this week to provide her expert analysis on China once again is Dr. Yu Jia, the senior fellow on our Asia-Pacific program. Hi again. Hello. Delighted to return to here. Very good to have you back. And last but certainly not least, joining us is Armida Van Rai, a research fellow with our international security program here at Chatham House. Welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Great to have you all here. Let's start with the Africa report, as I said, that we've just put out. Creon, can you help set the scene for us. What did our recent report on Africa, debt distress and the role that China is playing, what did it find? It essentially focuses on the historical experience of a number of African countries and shows that China's involvement in those countries has had many different forms and shapes. It's not one single type of involvement. And indeed, that the received perception of some that China's role has been one of, if you like, deliberately lending money and then trying to secure assets is not the correct way of looking at this. This very predatory role that people have described indeed. China as having, and one of yeah. our central arguments is no, it's not that. It's not that. the case. And indeed, that one of the reasons for China's involvement has been that there are different Chinese lenders who are not, terribly, not necessarily very well coordinated, and that over a period of time, this has been one of the factors leading to the different kinds of involvement. I think a further point is that looking ahead, this is a problem that's going to get worse, potentially in the year ahead. And this is partly due to the, the change in uh, international financial conditions, and in particular, the rise in US interest rates and spreads on debt in developing countries. So the problem you're talking about there is debt, not China's presence. Just how bad is that debt problem for some of these countries? It varies a lot. So for some countries that are in very severe debt distress, and indeed, three countries are currently undergoing a an approach called the Common Framework, which is essentially designed to help them restructure their debt. So a country like Zambia, for example, currently going through that process. But other countries actually have benefited from, for example, the one of the most recent shocks, the impact of Russia's attack on Ukraine on energy prices, and that has actually improved their outlook. But there are some a number of countries for whom it's very serious, and for the, for the region as a whole, it is serious and looks like it's getting worse. Eugia... Creon's described China's motivation there, if you like, and our portrait of it in this report as being not what many people say, not as predatory in motivation from the beginning. Is that something you agree with? That's something I agree with. But that's also something let me add in here is that we often consider 
that President Xi decided one thing, and hence everyone, especially every single institution within China, will follow. But for this very particular case, when it comes to the debt relief issues within China, you have a five or six different voices, different domestic-led institutions, without really a portfolio of foreign affairs, and actually decide how the money should be lent and what are the interest rate. And those five to six agencies never really had agreement with one another. So it end up in the time of G20, and Xi Jinping can only come out to say. Oh, let's look into the debt issues with different countries, case by cases. Simply, there's no agreement how things should be done within Beijing. So, given the position that China is now in, it, it does have a lot of influence in Africa. It has a lot of presence, whatever the initial motivation. How do you expect it to to use that influence? I think it's quite. Uh, Again, China's in conundrum in here. On the one hand, they have all these millions of investment and the development assistance towards those countries, but on the other hand, the country itself also facing a domestic economic downturn. And whether China will be able to sustain that level of debt relief, and also whether China will be sustain that level of development assistance towards those existing countries, and I'm very much in doubt whether it can. And do you think it wants to? It has a no choice, really, because it's almost once you start it, and there's no way you can return. It's almost like you have a different eggs and put into one omelet, and you can't return those omelet into one egg. Yes, influence and power cut both ways. In turn, they turn into <laughs> obligation quite quickly. Alex, I would love your perspective on this of how much of a problem debt is for these countries at this moment. So look, China's invest- investments peaked in 2016, so they've been on the decline since then. Our figures are that about 12% of Africa's private and public external debt is held by China's lenders in December 2022. So let's put that into context. That for a number of countries, this is a big problem. Creon mentioned it, Ethiopia in particular, which we didn't look at in depth in the report that we're talking about. But others like Angola have had a get out of jail free card because of the improvement of commodity prices. So actually, Angola had negotiated not a particularly good deal with China、uh, under a low oil price scenario. But now that we're eighty-five dollars a barrel or so at the moment, ninety, it's actually helping Angola a great deal. So the question I think for China is where will its priorities now be going forward? And what it is seeming to do is to lend to countries that we would at Chatham House regard as less risky in terms of lending. So the countries like are better government governed. They've got better institutions. Senegal. Cote d'Ivoire, for example, and often the lending is in a more competitive situation, so there's more checks and balances too. So this is a departure from the old pattern that we saw. So China is definitely repraising its portfolio and has been for a for a couple of years. The current visit of the foreign minister Zhang. It's I, interesting. I was just going he, to ask、oh, you. Okay. It's interesting that yesterday in Addis Ababa he said. There's been no debt trap strategy by China. Not only that, but there's a partial cancellation of the Ethiopian debt. So we know the Ethiopian debt, more or less, is probably around 14 billion. But this is the problem that we all three authors had. There's not a hell of a lot of transparency, and so getting the quality data on this is really difficult. And that's part of the problem, which I think China has put on itself, because therefore you have all these conspiracy theories about debt traps and other things, because the figures are not easily available. And that I think is a key. Part of learning for Beijing, I think, moving forward. Also, the key thing is that Jingang doesn't have those numbers because those numbers are controlled by the People's Bank of China, the central、yeah. bank, which has the number. So I think that's also partially to do with the power parity within the Chinese political system. That foreign minister quite often not to be seen as someone who can directly report to the president.
Mm. But Alex, what would you say if people said, look, this report is painting a very sunny picture of China's motivations in this. What does it in, intend to do with the financial relations it has with these countries? Is it in competition for influence with the U.S.? So obviously there is a competition and both the US but also Europe with its global gateway initiative. These are all competing initiatives now to compete with China's Belt and Road Initiative that we've also talked about a lot at Chatham House. And yes, I mean, we're trying through this report to to balance the debate, but we're not saying that China is altruistic in any way at all. And the small country of Djibouti on the on the Gulf of Aden, A, it has suspended its repayments to its two main debtors in December. One is China, the other is Kuwait. But we think that also there may have been deliberate debt entrapment of Djibouti because of its strategic location. China's got a military base there. A lot of other countries do too, but it's its strategic location. So I think it goes back to Creon's point that China looked at every, each country on a case-by-case basis. It was messy, as, Qi, as Cherry has, uh, has mentioned, and China is learning from its mistakes. I actually personally believe that China unwittingly has got itself into debt trap in certain countries because of its messiness and the disorganization that we're discussing on and is actually a bit traumatized about it and trying to get out of it. The one thing that we do see in every negotiation from Chad to Zambia to Ethiopia is that Chinese debtors want to be repaid first. But hell, everybody wants to get that money back as quickly as they can. Yeah, we're all can. nodding. Creon yeah. was nodding particularly vigorously in this. Where's the US and international institutions in all this? I think it, it connects very much with what Alex was saying, that one of the key other developments that's been going on has been China's increasing in great engagement with the traditional multilateral approaches to tackling debt distress. Very significantly in the autumn of 2020, China agreed to something called the Common Framework, which was essentially to look at the way the Paris Club traditionally deals with countries in debt distress and actually to apply that to a number of countries with Chinese cooperation. This would be overseen by the IMF and the World Bank. And the three countries that are in this, Chad, Ethiopia and Zambia, are under this kind of process. Now, the really interesting thing is that I think it was quite an achievement to get China engaged in this because it was an alternative to their traditional way of looking at things, which is we'll do our own separate deals. But it has proved incredibly, taken a very long time to develop. And there are different views about whether ultimately this is actually going to be successful because it's just all about China organizing itself internally and also resolving some of the existing issues as to how it would proceed or whether ultimately they're they're actually not going to see the benefits of this multilateral approach. And I think this comes to the US point because the US very much wants, in a sense, a traditional approach to tackling these debt issues. And, And the argument we make in our paper is essentially that it's in both if you like, the West's interests in the African country's interests, crucially, and in China's interests, that this multilateral approach is given the best possible chance of success. Thanks for that. Amida, I wonder if I can bring you in on this on a slightly different tack, but still on this question of competition between powers, if you like. And you've been looking at whether the continent is a theatre, if you like, for middle great power competition. What's your take on that? Yeah, so I would... I'd caution a little bit against overemphasizing the continent being a theatre for great power competition or this resurgence of great power competition on the continent because I think we may not have called it as such or considered it as such in the past but the Belt and Road Initiative was launched in 2013 fine its investments have sold since 2016 as we just heard but there's these powers have been playing on the continent for the past decade if not longer I think what is interesting regarding the wider context in which this is playing out, which is, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is that Russia's engagement 
on the continent is very much about offsetting the impact of the war in Ukraine. So it's trying to offset the impact of sanctions. It's trying to ensure that it is not isolated on the world stage. Mali is quite a good example of that, where it has effectively, France launched a major counterinsurgency operation um, about 10 years ago called Operation Back. That was at one point the largest deployment of European troops in the Sahel. They completely withdrew from that last at the end of last year. And Mali has now turned to Russia to provide security guarantees. And that's a very clear, stark choice between we don't want you anymore. Instead, we're going to turn to Russia and Wagner, its associated security firm. So I think that does point to a question to, I would say that Mali is a bit of an outlier. And I think most African states take more of a nuanced approach to the way that they conduct their foreign policies on the international relations stage. But I think there is also this point around great powers or middle powers can seek to project whether they want in Africa. But there's also this question whether countries in Africa are open and recipient and willing to engage on that front. And it's very much, this is really an emphasis, something I'd like to emphasise. What we're seeing across the board, and that's not just in Africa, but also in the Middle East, is countries pursuing their own national interests and that determining who they build alliances with and who they build bridges with. And so it may be that those are no longer perhaps traditional partners based on historical colonial ties, such as France, but also other countries like the Gulf, like the Gulf states, like Russia and like China in some cases. This is a really good point. It was one I was exploring and talking about African questions in my annual lecture earlier this week about countries wanting a choice of alliances and partnerships and so on. If we can just say on the Mali decision for a moment, it is so interesting, even though you say, as you say, it is very much of its own. Do you think Mali would have taken that decision if France had not, after these many long years there, decided to withdraw And what does Russia do to solving the problems of the threat of terrorism and instability there? Yeah. So the question of does Russia fill fill a vacuum or do they play alongside is a really interesting one. And I think that's very much case by case dependent. In the case of Mali, I think the Malian regime is interested in securing its own regime. And ultimately, they perceive Russia and Wagner to be a better fit for that than France. Having said that, Wagner has been accused of committing atrocities in other places where they've operated, for example, the Central African Republic. So there is that element. Are they actually able to build trust among the population? And the second is, as I mentioned, I think the troop deployment, don't quote me on this, was about 8,000 at the height of Operation Bakane. Wagner, it's difficult to assess, but has about 1,000 troops in the country. So how much can you achieve with 1,000 troops? And this is then also where Russia's disinformation powers come in and the way they spread mis- and disinformation mis and disinformation to try and get in basically but the extent to which that will actually deliver on security guarantees is entirely unsure and as I mentioned the regime is concerned with its own survival not necessarily with providing healthcare infrastructure for its population not with improving governance issues etc. Alex I wonder if you could take a step back and wrap up this question of competition in the continent for us after the portrait that Armida has been giving, do you see it as great powers or just lots and lots of other countries trying to get some kind of influence there? It's about that we're in this era of multipolarity and choice. And so there are choices. The problem, I think, in Mali was actually the legacies of the France Afrique project. And so it's very much tied also to perceptions of France and wanting to diversify from France. And Russia has been opportunistic. 
But we see a lot more players on the African continent, and that's good for Africa if African leaders are prudent and wise of how to manage that for developmental purposes. If it is just for creating Praetorian guards for a protection of illegitimate regimes like the military junta in Mali, and remember there's been several coups there. Well, there's one coup and then they weren't satisfied with that, so there's a counter coup. Same pattern we've had now just next door in Burkina Faso. That's not going to help stabilize or provide any public goods. And that's the trouble, I think, in, in, in parts of the continent, that, it, that the, these partnerships are about regime and narrow elite protection and are not sustainable long-term. My own prediction for Mali is that we're gonna have another coup. Uh, and there might be a swing back towards the West uh, of some sort, not to France in the way it was, but that's what I think we will see. So just to end on a slightly more positive point, if you like, we were talking, you and I, about the, the case for the African Union being brought within the G20, becoming the G21. Just t- t- tell me um, your thoughts on that. So unusually, one area of consensus is that all the permanent five uh, support the idea of the African Union joining the G20, so it be G21. The EU has also come out and supported this. So let's see what India does under its presidency. But there seems to be pretty much global consensus that would be a good thing. And I think it's a recognition internationally of the growing importance of Africa and its countries, and also the growing assertiveness of Africans to be in the international system. A point your team has been making, there's not an act of charity bestowed on Africa, something Afri- African at countries all. have you been, need have to been arguing for. for. And, yeah. uh, and Africa has been disadvantaged historically in the international system, underrepresented. Yes, I think it it would be an interesting evolution of the G20 because when it was formed, it was essentially about the largest economies and it was about the governments of those economies being able to make decisions which would have real and practical effects. In a sense, if you compare the African Union with the EU, it has key decision-making rules. The African Union is not by any means in that position. So it would be... It would definitely be an evolution of how the G20 works and how it functions. Undeniable. And one that you are in favour of? Frankly, no. But that's uh, that's probably for a further discussion. For a further discussion, because you think it would undermine... I think it would undermine, undermine its, its effectiveness, fundamentally. Yeah. UG? Quite surprisingly that China and United States reach an agreement allowing African Union to be the G20 plus one. I think essentially what China is trying to do in here is just trying to have more supporters within G20 for itself. I think that has been in the past for quite long-term investment between Beijing and African Union. So I'm expecting that African Union to a large extent on international multilateral fora will really supporting certain initiatives proposed by Beijing. So I think it really seems to be a good one for Beijing as well. All right, we've got two votes in favour, one against. Armida, do you have have views on this? I mean, I think I don't want to segue too much to the next element, but one of the things that we heard at the event last night was very much about they need to have a voice at the table because they are a major power and a major player. So I think that is a point for consideration. Great. On that, let's come on to the event that we had this week. And it was with Comfort Eero, the president of the International Crisis Group. Here's a clip from it. The other thing that I think is important to emphasise, I'm pretty sure, and it runs right through the 10 conflicts, and hopefully it can be, we can discuss it further in, with the audience, is that despite the difficulties and the 
the very worrying trends that we're seeing internationally. Multilateralism hasn't completely died. No, um, in fact, it, I think there's a re reinvestment. Yeah, yeah there's been, a, and how ironic, that a number of people are now defending multilateralism. Last year or the year before, under the previous Trump regime, there was a backlash, and we talked a lot about how dysfunctional mm. the Security Council is, and yet we've seen in the last year or so that although there's been struggles and the dysfunction is still there in the Security Council. It's managed to compartmentalise a number of issues and it's managed machinery still working. And out of it, you saw a very activist UN Secretary General deliver the Black Sea Grain Deal and other things that are very important, whether in, in terms of climate security or even in Ukraine. So it's not all been bad and gloomy. There's still some things that work in though we can talk about the quality of the institutions. And as as, as well. Bronwyn pointed out last night, the mm. General Assembly has had a new yeah. lease of life as well. A new lease of life. Three times, I think, yeah. They, yeah. they went to the to Security Council. In fact, I, had the, I took the opportunity to listen to Bromlin this morning because I knew I was coming here. Yes, and one, yes. yeah, one thing I welcomed that she said was that it was important that if you wanted to ensure the legitimacy of these institutions going forward, that you made sure that it was more representative. And her recognising the importance of the African Union to be part of the G20 and it's going to be a very significant with India also being at the helm of the G20 and yeah. then you've got Japan also at the helm of the G7 and that, how that's going to be very important in terms of reviving the relevance of these various multilateral bodies as well. Amida, what did you take away from this discussion? So for me there are three main takeaways. One we touched on that already is the growing importance of middle powers in international relations. And I'm just going to ask you to pause mm -hmm. there. Just tell us just a bit more what we mean by middle powers. Middle powers. So I would say it's a bit of a nebulous definition and people may well disagree around the table and that's fine. So I'd say the great powers, China, China and the US, Russia might dip into that. Middle powers, countries like the UK, countries like France, but also countries like India, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, perhaps what we might have considered the more traditional BRIC countries. They don't all share characteristics. It might be their economic might, Germany, for example. It might be their influence, the UK. And it, so they don't share a set of characteristics, but they all have different levers that they can pull quite effectively internationally. And I was interrupting you because yes. that, that, that was the first of your... Um, first yes, three. so the growing importance of middle powers in international affairs. One, in terms of their effectiveness in humanitarian negotiations. So, for example, if we look at the role that Turkey played in negotiating the Black Sea grain deal, allowing grain coming out of Ukraine, very effective. And then also just their very pragmatic approach to international affairs. We heard Alex talk about multipolarity and that's really the defining word of the moment, I'd say. They are interest-driven and they will pursue alliances and partnerships purely on that basis. And so that's perhaps a bit of a shift away from more traditional models of alliances towards a more minilateral system. And again, UK Oz, the agreement between the US, the UK, Australia and other countries providing defence security is an example of that, but there are many others. So that's one takeaway. Second takeaway, which I thought was quite interesting, is that multilateralism isn't, in brackets, fully dead. This is something that Comfort really stressed last night. On the one hand, so issues that clearly pit the US, China and Russia against each other still made absolutely no point. But on other issues, the UN has been able to compartmentalise and has been able to make progress. So, for example, again, this Black this black Sea Grain deal that I mentioned, Turkey negotiated that alongside the UN and the UN was instrumental in that 
in bringing in delivering. And then the third is, which I think is quite important, is how non-Western countries view the conflict in Ukraine. And I think this can actually quite often be slightly misunderstood. And just emphasizing that they do not question the principles of sovereignty or territorial integrity. But again, they do want to take ownership over their response to this. And again, this goes back to who do you partner with, on what issues, etc. Okay, thanks for taking us right to the heart of the themes. We're also billing this as which conflicts should we watch out for in 2023. And Alex, the war in Tigray and Ethiopia was listed as one to watch. What is your sense of... It's um, very fragile at the moment, but there are other regions in Ethiopia that we should be equally worried about that are are percolating at the moment and may boil over. So there's a lot of fragility in Ethiopia and it is a country, therefore, to watch with both uh, whether actually the Tigray has ended, but also whether there will be re-emergence of other disputes that will become more violent. Mm. And we've already talked about Mali and the Sahel. Yujia, Taiwan was listed there by the crisis group as one to watch. Obviously, a key potential flashpoint between China and the United States. What's your reckoning of how likely that is? I think, let's put it in this way, it is one of those freezing conflict in international affairs because either side have not really prepared yet to have the final re-escalation. But we cannot exclude the might potentially that because of lack of communication channel between Beijing and Washington, and hence the two sides just sleepwalk into a conflict that no one really wanted right now. So I think the potential flashpoint is there, but how likely that's going to be a full-blown military escalation, we don't really know at this stage. Now, within Asia, I think another flashpoint in here is really the dangerous entertainment of the nuclear weapons with North Korea. I think that's probably more, even bigger looming crisis than Taiwan for the moment. No, thanks for mentioning that. The Western Balkans is always on our mind at Chatham House to, in other discussions about Europe. Armida, other ones to watch? Yeah, so I think from my side, I'm concerned about Afghanistan, which was on the list last year, to be fair, but wasn't on the list this year, and it's a non-exhaustive list. But I think the recent decision by the Taliban to ban female aid workers will have a real impact on humanitarian agencies and aid agencies accessing women and girls in Afghanistan, on top of an already dire humanitarian situation. So that's a huge cause of concern. And Creon, just give us a sense of your take on the global economy, the background to all this year. We have this extraordinary kind of combination of the legacy of the pandemic. And as we can see in China, this is still a very substantial impact on the global economy. But we also have on top of that the impact of Russia's attack on Ukraine and everything that's followed from that. But I think the interesting thing is we're already beginning to see, if you like, the global economies respond to this to adjust to this there's a there are policy responses from the central banks in terms of tackling inflation and i think for the broader picture people are suggesting that we may well be at the peak in terms of that and that what we will see going forward is a reduction in inflation there's a key question about how long that's going to last and how long it will take to get the kind of inflationary impetus out of the economy mm. but I, I think broadly it may well be that this first two or three months of this year is, if you like, the worst point. Now, there that are other ways... That begins to sound optimistic. There's obviously a big debate at the moment about whether central banks will begin tilt away from focusing so much on inf- beating inflation and try to do more about growth. Yeah, they, as a, as a central banks will argue that unless you actually combat, deal with inflation, you can't have growth. So ultimately, it's a question of a judgment about have they done enough 
to deal with the inflation problem and therefore they can stop at this stage or pretty close to this stage or do they need to more need to do more in order to squeeze the inflation out of the system that's the key judgment a number of them are having to make at this point and it may it will differ from one country to another which could lead to some volatility actually between countries as they have to japan is in one situation the uk is in another europe another and so on and european um, countries in different ones from each yeah, other all grappling with these things so it's, it's not a, a particularly easy or cheerful backdrop. But I, I, but I would share that view that ultimately you have to deal with the inflation threat before you can... And then the growth issue, it's way beyond... It's way... It's central banks have a role, but there's far more to do with that, particularly around our own UK issues to do with productivity. There's a vast range of policy issues necessary to address that. The Prime Minister is desperately trying to turn the conversation to growth <laughs> and productivity, but has still got to combat the strikes. But we're not going to bring it all back home. Uh, Amida, last thought on this. Yeah, if I just want to add, if I could just add, we've mainly talked about conflicts with geopolitical global ramifications. And that's right, because they, they have the biggest impact. But I also just want to stress, doesn't mean that countries who don't perhaps have those implications, that the the, the situation for the populations in those countries isn't any less dire. Think of, for example, of Myanmar, but there's a whole host of other countries that we haven't even touched on. But that doesn't mean that we should forget about them. Yeah. It is an extraordinarily difficult time to run a country and try and help people there. Thank you for that. I can't say that we're ending on the most cheery note to start the new year, but we will try and find some points of optimism in the the months to come. Big thank you to my guests, Alex, Creon, Armida and Yujia, all of whom are regularly in the media and whose writing and research you can find here at Chatham House and publications around the world. And you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media channel. So do and follow and subscribe to us and please do leave us a review as it really helps us. Just regardless of what that review says, I have to say. To read more from all of our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member, which we'd love you to be, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, and you can follow the continuing work of all our programmes, including those on Africa, finance, Asia-Pacific and security. I also gave my first annual lecture this week as Chatham House Director and talked about the challenges for this year, including some of the ones we've been touching on, the response to the Ukraine invasion, how the world responds to China, and how to put more life, a new kind of life, into multilateral agreements. Do have a look at that. That's on YouTube and Twitter. That's all for now. Stay tuned to all our channels next week where we've got more in our series on the Nigerian presidential elections. We have Peter Gregory Obi, we have Rabio Musa Kwankwazo, and Alex Vines is going to be chairing all those and our Africa presidential election discussions have been very lively so far. Do come and listen to those as well. 